recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, Christagenia.org. Today is Friday, October 19th, 2012, and this is Christagenia on TalkShoe. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. I wanted to talk about, um, t- tonight we're going to do our presentation of the Gospel of Jude, chapter 18. First, I wanted to talk about something that um, came up in, in a Bible study, in the Wednesday night Bible studies I do with the people from Louisiana. And and I thought, since we did it there, and, and um, it, it was rather interesting, I, I thought I'd repeat it in brief here. You, you know, Jude 14, one single verse in the New Testament proves... Without a doubt, in my eyes, the 2C line, the, the standard, and I have to call it this, right, so that we all know what I'm talking about, that the standard 2C line or dual C line Christian identity interpretation of Genesis chapter 3, where the Apostle Jude calls Enoch the seventh from Adam. Why would the Apostle Jude call Enoch the seventh from Adam? Enoch is not the seventh man from Adam. That's for certain. If you read the account in in Genesis chapters 4 and 5 about the children of Seth, well, they all had many sons and daughters in each generation. Adam lived um, to be X number of years old, and he begot Seth, and he lived another X number of years and begot sons and daughters. Seth lived to be X number of years old, and he begot Enos, and then he lived X number of more years and begot sons and daughters. So Enoch, he's not the seventh man from Adam. Enoch has to be the seventh something from Adam. And the only thing that makes sense is that he's the seventh birthright holder, the seventh eldest born son from Adam. But when we go down the line from Enoch's ancestors, we see Seth. We're talking from Adam, so Adam doesn't count here. We see Seth, Enos, Canaan, Mahalaliel, Mahaliel, or however you want to pronounce that, I'm sorry, Jared and Enoch. And that makes Enoch the sixth from Adam. So that puts um, mainstream Christians, I would say, it doesn't put me in a quandary. I know who to count. It puts mainstream Christians in a quandary. To To make Enoch seventh from Adam the seventh birthright holder from Adam, the seventh um, firstborn son from Adam, we have to include either Cain or Abel. That's the question to press mainstream Christians with, that that question two seed line Christian identity, that question our interpretation of the events of Genesis chapter 3. If Enoch is seventh from Adam, to make him seventh from Adam, who did Jude count? Was Jude counting Cain or was Jude counting Abel? 
if you tell me that Jude was counting Cain, then you're disregarding Genesis 4.25, which clearly tells us that Seth was a replacement for Abel. That Seth was raised up to replace Abel. Very explicitly. So if you tell me that Cain must be counted, well, then you're ignoring Genesis 4.25. If you tell me that Abel must be counted because, well, Seth replaced Abel. It's very clear in the scripture. Cain's not even listed as one of Adam's sons. If you tell me that Seth repla- that, that we must count Abel to make Enoch the seventh from Adam, well then, you're admitting that the Genesis, that the two seed line Christian identity explanation or interpretation of of Genesis chapter 3 is correct. It's correct. I know it's correct. But that's just one way to put mainstream Christians, and especially their pastors, right, to put them on a spot. It's one way to put those who deny our interpretation of Genesis chapter 3 on the spot. Just ask them, how is Enoch the seventh from Adam? How is Enoch the seventh from Adam? And, and, and let them mull over that one for a while. And, and then demand. Demand of them to answer the question. Who would, you make, who would you make first from Adam in order to make Enoch the seventh from Adam? What Would you make Cain the first from Adam? Or would you make Abel the first from Adam? That'll put them on the spot. I, 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 I'd... Um, It'd be interesting to hear some of the results. I just thought I'd take that little aside at the beginning of today's program because Luke chapter 18 is a short chapter, right? We've been covering this um, on the Saturday night program. Sword Brother and I were covering this Lewis McFadden, and we have one more week left, I believe, and that's tomorrow night. His remarks concerning the Federal Reserve and I believe the Saturday series with Lewis McFadden and the Federal Reserve has been quite timely, coinciding with my presentation of Luke chapter 16 and the parable of the unrighteous stewards and the sons of this age being appointed stewards over our households, which is what happened with the Federal Reserve Act in 1913, in the United States at least. It it happened long before that in England, in in 1695, I believe, when the Bank of England was founded. But in 1913, the Federal Reserve Act was established here, and we basically appointed, we appointed the Jews to be stewards of our economy, the Jewish bankers, the international bankers, the Rothschilds, the Schiffs, the Baruchs, the Warburgs, Every single Federal Reserve chairman has been a Jew. Every one of them. They are the unrighteous stewards set over our household. So how could we expect not to be screwed? When are Christians going to learn that lesson? That's all, that's all I'd like to know. It, it's pretty obvious. It, it's, um, I, I don't know. I, I thought it was an interesting parallel, but it, it's patently true. It's, I don't know how we're ever going to convince the, the, our white brethren lost in the world 
that, that it's true, but it's, it's absolutely true. That there's no doubt the unrighteous steward in the parable had enriched all of his master's debtors. Well, the unrighteous stewards at the Federal Reserve have enriched every alien country at the expense of the American people. That's pretty clear. Just look out the window. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verse 1. Then he spoke to them a parable in reference to the necessity for them always to pray and not to falter, saying, there was a certain judge in some city who feared not Yahweh and respected not man. And there was a widow in that city. And she began saying to him, exact vengeance for me from my opponent. That, that verb, she began saying to him, that's the verb arco, and, and even though it's simply translated as began, it, it implies that it means that she began and continued to say to him. It, it's something that it's difficult to express in English, right? That the idea. Verse 4. Yet for a time he desired it not. But afterwards he said to himself, Even if I do not fear Yahweh, nor do I respect man, having respected persons, right? Indeed, on account of this widow causing me trouble, I shall avenge her, lest in result of her coming out, of her coming, she wears me out. She wears me out, or she annoys me greatly. They're both metaphorical renderings of a phrase, hupopiaze me, which literally means she would hit my eye. Literally, this says, lest in result of her coming, she would punch me in the eye. It, it doesn't mean that literally. It's an, it, it's a, um, it's an idiom for wearing me out or for, um, for annoying me greatly. Paul actually used the same verb literally in 1 Corinthians 9.27. Verse 6, Then said the prince, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. In that verse, the Codex Sinaiticus wants the word for hear, where the clause would be read as a question. What does the unrighteous judge say? Now with Yahweh, verse 7, not at all bring about vengeance for his elect. Those who are crying out to him day and night and have forbearance with them. I say to you that he shall bring about vengeance for them with haste. But coming, shall the Son of Man find faith upon the earth? Many likened the widow to Israel. For Yahweh, the husband of Israel, technically speaking, of course, God cannot die, but manifest as a man, he can die fulfilling the law. Technically speaking, he died on the cross of Christ, being Yahweh manifest in the flesh. The elect, of course, have a new husband in the risen Christ, who is the living God. Paul tells the assembly at Corinth, lost Israelites whom he had brought to Christianity, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, for I admire you with the zeal of Yahweh, for I have joined you to one husband, 
to present the chaste virgin to Christ. However, the comparison of the widow to Israel is unnecessary, and Yahweh our God is certainly not an unrighteous judge. The parable, the parable is an allegory, right? Psalm chapter, I'm sorry, the seventh Psalm, verse 11. God judges the unrighteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. God judges the righteous, I'm sorry. And God is angry with the wicked every day. However, the same verse from the Septuagint reads quite differently, and I'll read it. God is a righteous judge and strong and patient, not inflicting vengeance every day. And that's the sense of the Greek also. Whatever way the original of the verse was intended, perhaps both statements are pertinent here. This discourse began with the passage at Luke chapter 17, verse 20. The chapter divisions in the King James Bible do not do us any favors. Chapter 18, verse 1, does not start with a clean slate. We don't erase our minds of everything that was said previously simply because the chapter number changes. The same was true with chapter 16 from chapter 15. The chapter divisions are horrible. They don't do us favors. They help. They actually assist people in reading passages out of context. I've seen it a thousand times, maybe a million. This discourse, the parable of the unrighteous judge here, I'll call it, began with the passage at Luke 17, 20, after Christ had healed the lepers. And then the Pharisees had asked him, when the kingdom of heaven would come. Christ then warned that the days are coming when you shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you shall not see it. And they shall say to you, Behold, he is there, or behold, he is here. You should not depart nor give pursuit. Christ then warned that at the time of his appearance, which would be quite sudden, that life would once again be as it was in the days of Noah and in Sodom and Gomorrah, where such things as race mixing, bestiality, sodomy, and all types of other sexual and moral deviancies dominated society. So this parable of the unrighteous judge is given in the context of these things which are going to be extant at his coming. This entire discourse reflects the very same situation which the people of God find themselves in today. We look at this disgusting world around us, and we desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. We desire the vindication. The woman desires the vindication of the unrighteous judge. Even if the unrighteous judge ultimately vindicates the woman simply because she would not relent, from her appeals to him, then the remnant of the righteous people of God who cry out to him in this time will certainly be vindicated by Yahweh, their God, who is a righteous judge. Yet that remnant, we are told here, should be crying out for such justice both night and day. Even then it seems that the judgment of Yahweh carries. 
for which the apostle Peter wrote in his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers with scoffing, going according to their own desires, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers have fallen asleep, all things continue thus from the beginning of creation. Therefore, for that very reason, Christ asks, But coming, then shall the Son of Man find faith upon the earth. That is our challenge today. To seek the truth and to maintain our faith in it so that we are not found joined to the deviance of society so that we don't join ourselves to the beast. Revelation chapter 18. From the King James Apocrypha, the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 3. But the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. In the sight of the unwise, they seem to die. They seemed to die. And their departure is taken from misery. It actually brings joy. The veracity of the wisdom of Solomon, the veracity of that statement is in the parable which Christ gave last week where he said, if your hand offends you, cast it away. If your right hand or if your eye, if your right eye offends you, cast it away. It's better to enter into life with one eye than to burn in the fires of Gehenna, right? Death to the Christian is an entering into life because we have faith in our God that our spirits shall live forever. But the souls of the unrighteous are in the hand of God, and there shall no torment touch them. In the sight of the unwise, they seem to die, and their departure is taken from misery, and they're going from us to be utter destruction but they are in peace. For though they be punished in the sight of men, yet is their hope full of immortality. And having been a little chastised, they shall be greatly rewarded. For God proved them and found them worthy for himself. As gold in the furnace, he has tried them, the fiery trials of this life. And receive them as a burnt offering. And in a time of their visitation, they shall shine. And run to and fro like sparks among the stubble. They shall judge the nations. The Lord appears with ten thousands of his saints, as Jude quotes Enoch. They shall judge the nations and have dominion over the people. And their Lord shall reign forever. Psalm 58, verse 10. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. Vengeance is mine, says Yahweh. Well, when that happens, Revelation chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's the time we await this very moment. The righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. 
the elect of God shall wash their feet in the blood of the wicked. Micah chapter 4, arise, Zion and thresh, the last trumpet we await. So that a man shall say, verily there is reward for the righteous. Verily, he is a God that judges in the earth. All those scriptures converge. There's no doubt. Luke 18, chapter 9. I'm sorry, verse 9. Then he also spoke to some of those who were persuaded by themselves that they are righteous and are despisers of everyone else. This parable... Two men were going up to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood praying these things to himself. Yahweh, I give thanks to you that I am not as the rest of men, robbers, unrighteous, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice each week. I give a tenth of all whatever I should gain. The phrase twice each week, I must add, is literally twice each Sabbath. The term Sabbath, referring to either the Sabbath period of seven days or the Sabbath day itself, which is the seventh day. The phrase rendered first day of the week in the King James Version at 1 Corinthians 16.2 is literally first of the Sabbath the day after the Sabbath and start of a new seven-day period. I know of no Greek word for week. Greek-speaking Hebrews use the term Sabbath to designate the Sabbath period of seven days as well as the Sabbath day itself. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood afar off, not having desire, nor raising his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, Yahweh, make propitiation for me, a wrongdoer or a sinner. I say to you, back to the words of Christ, I say to you, he going down to his house is justified beyond the other. Because everyone who is exalting himself shall be humbled, and he humbling himself shall be exalted. He going down to his house might be idiomatically rendered, he returning home after praying at the temple. The Pharisee boasted that he was not a sinner and proclaimed his own righteousness through his fulfillment of tithes, and his fasting, which are in that matter no better than rituals. They become rituals. When you rely on those basic actions to effect your salvation and your righteousness, they're no better than rituals, things which men perform merely to display their own justification as if they could save themselves through that display. And we see that the self-righteous are, as Luke explains here, despisers of everyone else. And therefore, they are not lovers of their brethren. 
But they claim license through their pretentious conduct, through their self-righteousness and their rituals, to exalt themselves over their brethren. In contrast, the tax collector presented a humble countenance, and he simply admitted being a sinner, asking God for forgiveness. That's the model we should follow. Most of today's churchgoers have patterned their lives after the Pharisee and not after the tax collector. Yet this is a warning purposely given after the parable of the unrighteous judge, where Christ tells us that his elect in the earth must continue to pray for vindication from the wicked. We don't take the attitude that we're better than our brethren who are caught up in the wicked, right? These statements of Christ are not disconnected. If we believe that we have the truth and we are walking in the way, we cannot use that as a license to vaunt ourselves over our brethren who are still walking in the world. With our understanding, we must not become as the Pharisee. We have to maintain the attitude displayed by the tax collector. We love our brethren and we don't vaunt ourselves over them. Holier than thou. Luke 18, verse 15. Then they also brought to him the infants in order that he would hold them. But seeing it, the students admonished them. But Yahshua called out to them, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not prevent them. For of such as these is the kingdom of Yahweh. Truly I say to you, whoever does not accept the kingdom of Yahweh as a child may by no means enter into it. For of such as these is the kingdom of Yahweh. I cited this verse last week talking about that passage in Luke 17 where it says in the King James that the kingdom of Yahweh is within you. And it should say that the kingdom of Yahweh is among us. It is not within us. And if we are genetic Israel, the kingdom of Yahweh consists of us and our God loves his children. Clifton Anaheiser made a good point a good observation, I should say, several years ago, when he explained that one must accept the kingdom of Yahweh as a child because a child has no agendas. A child has no preconceived notions, no underlying motives. The heart of the child is pure. The heart of the child has a mind which is free from all suppositions, presuppositions, and false premises. When we learn the kingdom message, which is founded upon the truth of the covenants of God, which many may call Christian identity or Christian Israel identity today or covenant theology, then we must wipe the slate clean of everything which we think we know about the scripture and encounter it again as a child would learn it, with a clear mind and without those agendas. We cannot put new wine into old Catholic or Lutheran or Anglican or Baptist bottles. 
We cannot put a new patch on old Catholic or Lutheran or Anglican or Baptist garments. We have to receive the kingdom of heaven like a child. And one of the leaders questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what should I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Yahshua said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except one, Yahweh. All goodness comes from God, and all men, all men are base. All men are prone to sin. Therefore, we should always seek to humble ourselves. The good teacher appellation was used by the Pharisee to flatter Christ. Men often vacillate in weakness to those who smother us with flattery. Never accept a flatterer. The reply by Christ was designed to reject the flattery and to make that rejection clear to the flatterer. Proverbs 29.5 A man that flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Beware of the flatterer who is attempting to entrap you in his own agenda. Luke 18, verse 20. Know the commandments. You should, not have committed, you should not commit adultery. Yes, in the Greek, the mood is the subjunctive mood here. You should not. You may not. You should not commit adultery. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. Some Pharisees would argue that Christ gave them out of order, right? Of course, while all Ten Commandments are not vociferated here, they are elsewhere in the Gospel. That's not what's important here. Leviticus, Leviticus 18, verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does... He shall live in them. I am the Lord. Of course, that's the King James Version, right? Yet the phrase live in them would have been better translated have life by them. As the Christogenian New Testament translates the words of Paul, quite literally, who quotes this passage of Leviticus in Galatians 3.12. I believe it's 3.12. Now the law is not from faith, but he who practices these things shall have life by them. When we keep the laws of God, we live. However, we have all broken the law, and therefore we all require the mercy of our God if we are to live. Therefore, only God is good. Luke 18, verse 21. Then he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. And hearing it, Yahshua said to him, then one thing is left for you. All whatever you have, sell and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in the heavens. 
then come, follow me. But hearing these things, he had become very grieved, for he was exceedingly wealthy. This man has life. He has his life. For being a child of Adam, he shall live forever. Being a child of Israel, he shall certainly be saved. All Israel is saved. As it is written in the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, verse 23, For God created man to be immortal and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Yet if the man had forsaken his earthly riches and distributed them to the needy, he was told that he shall have treasure in the heavens. The man rejected that promise in exchange for the immediate yet temporary comforts of this world. That doesn't mean that he loses his life. It means that he loses his reward. Verse 24. Then seeing him, Yahshua said, In this passage, there are some additional words found in the King James Version that he was very sorrowful. And seeing him, that he was very sorrowful, Yahshua said. Those words are not found in the oldest manuscripts. Then seeing him, Yahshua said, How difficultly those having riches enter into the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of Yahweh, I'm sorry. That word riches is the Greek word krema. Krema actually means a thing that one uses or needs. In the plural, it means goods or property, money, gear, equipment. Therefore, this passage may have been rendered how difficultly those having property enter into the kingdom of heaven. In either case, it is certainly evident that those who have riches in this life or property, this man was exceedingly wealthy, so he must have had large amounts of property, they certainly do enter into the kingdom of heaven if indeed there's another requirement here. If indeed they were born from above in the first place, unless a man be born from above, he shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven, right? So salvation is genetic. If you're born from above, well, all Israel is saved. Very simple. Even though this man had great riches, he shall enter into the kingdom of heaven he will only do it with difficulty. They only do so at the grace of God and not of their own merits. When they do so, they do it with difficulty. It's not hard for God to get them into the kingdom of heaven. It's hard on them when they get to the kingdom of heaven and realize how they've lived their lives. That's the only thing that Christ could mean. I'm sure God doesn't, Yahweh doesn't have to put up an effort to get them into the kingdom of heaven. That's already determined. <laughs> That's already predestined. It's difficult for the individual who had the riches. Because they 
realize that they had no reward if they spent their lifetime in pursuit of earthly riches. That's the scripture. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of Yahweh. This passage was um, it was modified a lot in the early in the early manuscripts, probably because of all the different dialects of Greek. And, and I'll give the examples. I'll give the the details. Right, the codices Alexandrinus, Beze, and the sixth century codex designated P as in Peter by the editors of the. Nestle A land, Nobum Testamentum Grecae. Those codices all have to pass through rather than to enter through. The phrase eye of a needle is literally the hole of a needle. In English, we would call it the eye of a needle, right? But it should be the hole of a needle if we were seeking a purely literal translation. Different words are used among the manuscripts for both the word whole, which is trema in the Codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Beze, and trumalia in the Codices Alexandrinus, Washingtonensis, and in the majority text upon which the King James is based. In English, the translation is the same. It's whole. The words for needle is balone in the Codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Beze, and Rathus in the Codices Alexandrinus, Washingtonensis, and the majority text. So what we see there is basically a, a scribal change in, in language, and, and there are many instances of this, especially in the Codex Beze, where um, words were changed simply, without a change in meaning, simply to accommodate a different dialect. And that's it, it's interesting to the textual critic. It's probably not interesting to the English reader. I understand that. There is a story often repeated by people who are, or who at least think they are, well-read. That the term eye of a needle refers to a special gate in ancient city walls which men may enter into at night but which is too small for a camel, right? People repeat that story and they think they're smart. I've seen it a thousand times, maybe a hundred. This commentator, meaning myself, right, has not read every ancient history book, but has indeed read a great many of them. And has found absolutely no substantiation at all for this claim in reference to this passage. I wish I could, but I can't. I've never seen it. Where Christ said, whole of a needle, he must have been referring to what we today call the eye of a needle, the literal hole in the end of a literal needle. Is that, that story about the city walls and the gates, and, and that, that's a nice story, but as far as I'm concerned, as far as I'm concerned until I see ancient and original verification that such gates existed and were called the eye of a needle? Well, this story is just bunk. And I would ask you to, um, 
to forget it if, if if you've ever repeated it. That's all. It's bunk. Luke 18, verse 26. And those listening said, then who is able to be saved? So he said, meaning Christ, things impossible with men are possible with Yahweh. The Old Testament clearly promises that all Israel shall be saved. The Old Testament clearly promises that all of the sins of all of the children of Israel shall be forgiven. There are no stated exceptions to those promises anywhere in Scripture. Even though at least most of the children of Israel, I can't speak for them all, right? I I know which category I fall in. I'm a sinner, no doubt. At least most of the children of Israel certainly do not deserve salvation. Yahweh shall keep his promises when we measure. They don't deserve salvation when we measure salvation, the, the merits of salvation based upon the keeping of the law. Most of us certainly do not deserve it. If we're required to keep God's law in order to be saved, we're all dead. But Yahweh shall keep his promises. We must be mindful of that, that if it were up to us alone, we could never save ourselves. Rituals and pretenses of righteousness are all mere vanity. They turn us into fools, and they benefit us in nothing. We see that the rich man would not give away his wealth and follow Yahshua Christ, God incarnate. The wealthy have often traded away righteousness for their wealth, neglecting the will of God and the love of kinsmen in order to pursue or to keep earthly riches. James chapter 1, verse 11. For the sun rises with burning heat and parches the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. Thusly also the wealthy with his purposes, wastes away. One cannot serve God and accumulate riches. And if one has wealth, while one's brethren are hungry, what sort of steward is one over the blessings provided by God? In today's society, there are probably not very many true white men or women who have managed to accumulate and retain great wealth. Usually it gets stolen by Jewish accountants. However, those of the children of Israel who are wealthy shall indeed be be saved, but cannot justly anticipate much of a reward in heaven. Verse 28. Then Peter said, look, we leaving our own things have followed you. Several of the codices, the Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Washingtonensis, and a majority text say, look, we have left all and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, that there is no one who has left a house or a wife or a brother 
or parents or children because of the kingdom of Yahweh, who would by no means recover many times more in this time and eternal life in the age which is coming. We forsake even our own kinsmen caught up in the world, our near kin, our own families, our own wives, our own parents, our own children, who are caught up in the world because of the kingdom of Yahweh. We put our God first. We put obedience and the seeking of the will of our God first over our immediate families. Now, if our immediate families are willing to go along with us, of course, there's no need to forsake them. But if our immediate families are caught up in, in the sin of the world, the gambling, vice, prostitution, whatever, I mean, there's, there's a million things, right? If they're caught up in the sin of the world, well, we're probably better off without them. Now, there's a fine line there. I wouldn't recommend to anybody to just dump his family. That's a judgment call that one must decide for himself. Many people love their families. They don't have to be two-seed line Christian identity. They don't have to walk in, in the way as we see it and in the straight and narrow path. They just have to be good Christians, and you shouldn't forsake them. Yet you better not forsake them. If one doesn't provide for his own, then he is accounted as one of the lawless. But, but if we forsake our families because of the kingdom of Yahweh, if we find that we have to separate ourselves from our families and we cling to our like-minded Christian brethren in the world, we indeed recover many times more in this time. We recover many times more in this life. I have a personal experience with this just this summer, and, and it's just an example. I'm not trying to make something of myself, believe me. But my own travels this summer are the best example I can offer of the veracity of the statement. I left my home in New York on a long journey to meet many of my Christian identity brethren, and I indeed found many brothers and sisters and houses and children and many excellent people who took me into their homes as though they were my own. That is the Christian example. That we treat our brethren as though what we have is theirs. In the body of Christ, there should be no want of fellowship and no want of communion. So if our families aren't fit for the kingdom of Yahweh, I mean, they'll be there. If your family is an Israelite family, it will be in the kingdom of Yahweh. But we need to do his work in, in this world and keep ourselves from evil and keep ourselves from that this um, from, from all of the vice and the immorality in, in this Babylonian system. Well, that that's going to cause some of us to have to split from our families because they're caught up in all of that. So if we do forsake our families for the, benefit, for the sake of the kingdom of Yahweh, because of the kingdom of Yahweh, 
because we can't put up with the vice and the immorality, with 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 the um, the the party with the Jews, the party with the devil mentality. Well, well, we we don't have to put up with that. At that point, we have to go. Well, we can't put up with with with, um, with all of the sin. We have to separate ourselves from that. So if we leave our house for the sake of the kingdom of Yahweh, yes, we will. What well, we will seeking our faithful brethren in the world, we will reap many times more what we've given up in this life and in the age which is coming. Verse 31. Then taking aside the twelve, he said to them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things written by the prophets for the Son of Man shall be completed. Here's an example of scriptural interpretation. A lot of people read John 19, 28 and say, well, all things are completed. So, so the prophets are, are, are gone. It's all finished. It's fulfilled. It's done. Because John 19, 28 says all things are completed. The Codex Beze ha- has here all things concerning the Son of Man and not all things written by the prophets for the Son of Man. But the the result is the same. Either way, the meaning is clear. And what we see is, what we see here in in Luke 18.31, where it says, and all things written by the prophets for the Son of Man shall be completed, we see here what John meant in John 19.28, where he says, where he wrote, with this, Yahshua seeing that he had already finished all things in order that the writing would be completed, he says, I thirst. All things being finished simply means what Luke says here, that all of the prophecies in Scripture concerning or alluding to the ministry and the passion of the Christ were then fulfilled. Many people especially the preterists, the people that try to assert that all prophecy was fulfilled by 70 AD, which is just crazy. They take John 19.28 to indicate that all things written in the prophets were fulfilled in Christ. And that's wrong. It merely intends that all things written concerning Christ were fulfilled at that time. Many other prophecies concerning men and nations were not yet fulfilled, nor are they all even now. Verse 32. For he, and Christ speaks concerning himself, the Son of Man, for he shall be handed over to the heathens, and mocked and abused and spat upon, and being scourged, they shall slay him. And then the third day he shall be resurrected. Handed over to the heathens. There's a lot of contention about that word heathens in scripture, right? The use of the word ethnos, ethnos being the Greek word, right? Strong's number 1484. The use of the word ethnos in the New Testament is poorly misunderstood even by most scholars. Here we have the phrase, tois ethnesin. That's the word ethnos, along with the definite article, in the dative plural case, 
And in my translation, it says, to the heathens, and I'm going to explain why. The word ethnos is usually and properly a nation. Yet, it must in certain contexts be translated as people. And the Christogenian New Testament does that on occasion. This is especially true, and here's what's really misunderstood about this word. It's especially true when the people being described consist of, of more than one nationality, in which case the common word for people in Greek, which is laos, is inappropriate. A laos in Greek is properly a people as a collective unit, whether the word is used in the singular or in the plural. Joseph Thayer will attest to that. Where a group which consists of people of various ethnic backgrounds, people of different nations in one group, right, is not properly considered as such a unit. It can't be called a laos. It is therefore called after the plural forms of the word ethnos. Just as today, we may use the term ethnicities in the plural. The diverse tribes of people in any given place in the empire were by the Greeks called ethnicities, the plural forms of the word ethnos being employed to describe them. This is a secondary use of the term ethnos in the New Testament. Apart from the use of the term the primary use of the term, which describes the nations, such as the nations of the Greco-Roman oikumenae. It's evident to me, being a student of history to some degree, that the transition of a people from nation to empire always seems to be accompanied by changes in language and confusion over the meanings of terms. Examples where the word ethnos is translated as people in the Christogenian New Testament are found in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, in Acts chapter 8, verse 9. In Acts chapter 8, verse 9, the King James Version also translated ethnos as people. In Acts chapter 13, verse 46, verse 48, Acts 18, 6, and in 1 Corinthians Chapter 12, verse 2. In his translation of the Septuagint, Sir Francis Brenton translated ethnos as people in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 2. And I have not checked his other renderings. The scriptural as well as the historical records are clear that the Edomites in Judea were primarily responsible for the crucifixion, having gained the political and ecclesiastical leadership of the nation. Although both the Romans and many of the true Israelites in Judea were unwitting accomplices. The scriptural record also attests that both Judeans and Romans spat on and abused Christ as evident comparing Matthew chapter 26, verse 67, 
and Mark chapter 14, verse 65 with Matthew chapter 27, verse 30, and Mark chapter 15, verse 19. Both the Judeans at the trial of Herod and the Romans, the Roman soldiers at the trial of Pilate, abused and spat on Christ and fulfilled the words which he spoke of himself here. So Christ was not handed over to a people, to a laos. He was handed over to peoples, to people of diverse nations, which the Greeks use the word ethnos in the plural to describe. And therefore, in this context, ethnos, in this passage, Luke 18.33, right? must be translated as people. Yet the Christogenian New Testament often employs the word heathen to signify a people in opposition to God and Christ. So that's just a literary, an act of literary license that I have taken. To use the word heathen to signify a people in opposition to God and Christ regardless of their race. And that is the reason for my translation of ethnos in the plural into heathen here. These notes will be on Christogenia with this podcast if anybody wants to look into the matter more closely. Luke chapter 24, verse 4, verse 20 substantiates my statements here concerning the Edomites in Judea being primarily responsible for the crucifixion to some degree, Luke chapter 24, verse 20 explicitly identifies those who were primarily responsible for the crucifixion where the two men speaking on a road to Emmaus explain, and I quote, and how the high priests and our leaders gave him over to a judgment of death and they crucified him. It's very clear in Acts chapter 5, I believe it is, that the high priests of the time were Sadducees, and they were not of the race of the apostles. They were Edomites. Luke 18, verse 34. Yet they understood not one of these things, and the saying was hidden from them, and they did not discern the things being spoken. From Luke chapter 24, the apostle records the remembrance of these words amongst the disciples, where we see from verse 6 that it says, Remember that he had spoken to you, yet being in Galilee, saying, It is necessary for the Son of Man to be handed over into the hands of sinful men and to be crucified and to be resurrected in the third day. And they remembered his words. They didn't understand the words when Christ spoke them at this time. Luke records after the fact that they did indeed recall these words. A similar statement is recorded in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32, where it says, And having departed from there, they went along through Galilee. And he did not wish that anyone should know, for he instructed his students and said to them, that the Son of Man is handed over into the hands of man, and they, they shall slay him, and dying after three days he shall arise. But they did not perceive the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. 
from the similar from this similar account in Mark, we see that the disciples did not want to face the truth which Christ was telling them. They didn't perceive what he said, and they were afraid to ask him. However, here in Luke, we learn that on this occasion, they could not. For this saying was hidden from them, and they did not discern the things being spoken. It is the providence of God to determine those of us who understand something and those of us who don't. And regardless of what we ourselves do, we cannot escape his providence. Christ himself, after his resurrection, had walked with those two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24:31. Yet they did not perceive that it was him until, as we read in that passage, their eyes were open and they recognized him. The providence of God determines what we see and what we don't. And that alone can explain why some of the most intelligent, learned people can be absolutely dense when it comes to certain things, especially to the truth of what we call Christian identity. Luke 18, verse 35. Then it happened upon his coming near to Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing the crowd passing through, he inquired what this could be. So they announced to him that Yahshua the Nazorian is passing by. Yes, the term in Greek is Nazorian. And it appears only here in Luke, but it appears seven times in the Acts, twice in Matthew, and three times in John. In the Gospel of Mark, only the word Nazarene is used, as it also appears in Luke chapter 4, verse 34, and in Luke 24, 19. So Luke actually has used both terms. This is all according to the Bulton Geddon concordance to the Greek Testament, right? While Nazarene is more, a more proper way to say of Nazareth in Greek, the distinction between these two words, Nazorian and Nazarene, seems to be one of form and not really one of meaning. The town of Nazareth was evidently not mentioned in the Old Testament, yet its name seems to come from the Hebrew word, Netzer, for branch, rather than being related to the Hebrew word for the ancient sect of the Nazarites. Nazir. The terms Nazorian and Nazarene should by no means be confused with Nazarite, since neither Christ nor the apostles had followed the requirements demanded of that ancient priesthood, which we find in the opening chapters of the book of Numbers. I think it's chapter 5 or 6, I forget. Rather, if the word which gave the village Nazareth its name came from the feminine form of the Hebrew word Netzer, N-E-T-S-E-R, strong, Strong's Concordance transliterates it, and that is quite plausible, then Christ wearing the appellation Nazorian 
fulfills in name some of the other Old Testament prophecies concerning him, because Netzer means a branch, which are found in both Isaiah and in Zechariah. Zechariah 3.8. Hear now, O Joshua, the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant the branch. For behold the stone that I have laid before Joshua. Upon one stone shall be seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave the graving thereof, saith Yahweh of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, saith Yahweh of hosts, shall ye call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. Zechariah 3.8. Joshua the high priest, a priest of the second temple, being used there as a type for Christ. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh Yahweh of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, Yahshua the Nazorian, Yahshua the Nazarene, if the word for Nazareth comes from the Hebrew word Netzer for branch. Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place. And he shall build the temple of Yahweh. Even he shall build the temple of Yahweh, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. Of course, this can only portend Christ himself, right? And he shall be a priest upon his throne, the Melchizedek priesthood. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Now, in these passages of Zechariah, the word for branch is the word semak, a different word, a synonym, basically. However, the prophecy is nevertheless fulfilled in Christ. Calling him Yahshua the Nazorian is tantamount to calling him Yahshua the branch. In Isaiah 11.1, 1, the word for branch is indeed netzer, where it says, and there shall come forth a rod, out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. That interpretation of the origin of the word Nazareth is highly disputed amongst Jews and, and, and Judeo-Christians. It doesn't bother me. Luke 18, verse 38. And he yelled, saying, Yahshua, son of David, have mercy on me. Here, we have a blind man who sees. Or at least, he saw what was most important to see. In the preceding verses, Yahshua told his disciples exactly what was going to happen to him. And they could not see it. Even having both eyes and the benefit of the company of Christ himself. Verse 39, Then those leading the way admonished him that he should be silent. But by much more he cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Yahshua stopping commanded that he be brought to him, that approaching him he inquired of him. 
what do you wish that I should do for you? And he said, Prince, that I may see again. And Yahshua said to him, see again. Your faith has preserved you. And immediately his sight recovered, and he followed him, extolling Yahweh. And all the people seeing it gave praise to Yahweh. We, praying that our eyes be opened, should be so blessed as this blind man, if indeed they are. From Luke chapter 11, Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened for you. For all who are asking shall receive, and he who is seeking shall find. And to him knocking, it shall be opened. If you seek the truth, or if you seek anything else in your life, and then, only if Yahweh wills it, you shall indeed find it, no matter your current degree of blindness. I will end the presentation here tonight with the end of Luke chapter 18. I will be here next week on Friday night with Clifton Emmerheiser. I will actually be here from New York. And we will, we will be discussing the Jewish role enforcing diversity on America and his latest paper, The Statue of Liberty, an Edomite Trojan Horse. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren for part three of our series on Lewis McFadden. Good night.